going to discuss some of the most basic central uh, notions and terms in Indian religions in general. These are these are ideas or uh, concepts which really cut across many different sectarian boundaries. You'll find that practically all the religions in India that stayed around for a while uh, sort of took on these notions. They, they organized life. So let's jump right into it. The first thing is, which was mentioned in the book, uh, life goals with the Sanskrit Purusharata or Pumartha. The idea is that, uh, whoops, as human beings down here, George Harrison calls the material world, as human beings down here, we engage in different activities. We have different projects, different goals in life, different purposes. And so these were, or, these are conceptualized in four, uh, which are called, how you doing? Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. So I'll explain these. Dharma, uh, as was explained in the book, um, comes from a Sanskrit word which means to sustain. Dharma is often translated as law, law or duty. And in fact, uh, in the modern age, because India didn't really have a word for sectarian religion, sometimes dharma was used to mean a sectarian religion, like Hindu dharma, or Christian dharma, or Buddhist dharma, and so on. But the most basic meaning is simply the law of principle. Because this whole civilization uh, traces its authority back to God, as we'll discuss, uh, therefore, when we say law, it means a sacred law. And, and therefore, dharma also means justice, because if human beings make a law, the law may be just or unjust. But if a law is coming from sacred authority, there's no question of an unjust sacred law. And so in that sense, dharma means law. And when we discuss the so-called caste system over here, you'll see that all the duties of the different members of society are also called dharma. They're sacred duties. So, dharma also means virtue because the notion is, and actually I, I want to talk about this also, it's a notion you find also in ancient classical civilization, that, well, I'll show you. Uh, the idea is, let's say these are human beings down here, and then here's sort of the, the, the cosmos, and here's some kind of divine authority, however you can see it, god or goddess or something. So the idea is that in God, or in the mind of God, or in the mind of whatever has created the universe, there is intelligence, there's reason, there's a certain logic. In fact, in, in classical civilization, the word that was used for this is logos. The logos. And uh, so this logos, this logic, this reason, this intelligent plan and purpose exists in the mind of God. And therefore, it is embedded in the structure of the universe. So the universe has not only a physical logic, there is a moral logic. There is a, again, I mentioned teleology, there's a purpose to the universe, which is the plan for the universe. And human beings, we're down here, we are created in such a way that we are capable of finding within ourselves this divine pattern, this logic, this plan for the universe. So if you look within your own heart, within your intelligence, you can find this. This was a view, by the way, which was very popular around the time of Jesus in the Roman uh, culture area, which was a good part of the world then. And so it was the Logos. Now, because this was so popular, this idea that there's this harmony, in fact, the Greek word cosmos, 
is related to the word cosmetic, because the Greeks conceived of uh, the universe, not just a big cosmetic shop, but they conceived of the universe as being somehow beautiful harmony. This is an idea which carried down even into the late Renaissance. The idea that there are celestial planets in the universe, and as they turn, they make beautiful music. They make this heavenly music. This was a very popular European idea up until around, you know, up until the early 1700s. So there's this divine plan, divine harmony, a logic, the purpose of the universe. It's manifested in the way the universe exists morally and physically, and human beings are capable of connecting to that. So the Logos is what connects us to the universe and to God. Now, it's precisely because this idea was so popular in the ancient world that uh, a writer who wanted to appeal to intellectuals of his time, the person that wrote the book of John, the latest of the four Gospels, began by saying in the beginning was the Logos, which is often translated the word. Uh, but actually, he said in Greek, in the beginning was the Logos. And the reason he did this is because the author of the book of John wanted to connect with intellectuals of his time. So the reason I bring all this up is because this is very similar to what you have in, the, um, in India. It's basically the same idea. Only instead of the word Logos, in a sense, they use the word Dharma. So Dharma, in fact, there, there's, for example, in the Mahabharata, there's a statement that... Uh, when dharma is protected, it protects. When dharma is injured, it injures. It's something like the force. You know, may the force be with you. It's really that idea. In fact, uh, Lucas got a lot of his ideas from uh, this ancient culture. So dharma is also virtue because the law is made in such a way that it's, it, it's, it's meant to cultivate virtue. It's not just a blind law. Like you'd say the law of gravity, a physical law. It's just like, you know, if you jump off a roof, you'll fall down. If you drop an apple, it falls. You could say the law of gravity in and of itself is not really benefiting or hurting people. It's just some blind physical law. But when you get to the level of moral law or cosmic law, it's not blind. It actually is meant. And even the law of gravity ultimately is part of the logos. Even the physical laws are ultimately made to lead us toward enlightenment, according to this classical Greco-Roman view and also the, the Vedic view. So dharma also means virtue. It's like they say in Brazil on the highways, King if you follow the traffic signs, you'll avoid accidents. The traffic laws are made, hopefully, in a rational society, not whimsically, but actually to protect people. So if you follow the traffic laws, you'll be safe, and you'll get where you want to go. So that's the idea. Dharma is not indifferent. It's not blind. It's actually there to raise people to higher consciousness and ultimately reconnect them to their highest self and to the Creator. So dharma means that human beings all over the world, in their better moments, cultivate virtue. They try to be good people. They try to, as we say, do, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Politicians always claim that they're doing something simply because it's the right thing to do. So that's dharma. Now apart from the cultivation of virtue and trying to be in harmony with the universe and so on, there's also self-interest. That's what artha means here. It means that we have personal desires, like I want to make a certain amount of money. I want to have a respectable position in society. I want these things for myself and also for my family and other people I care about. And so on. We have per, uh, personal selfish desires, which may not be evil or destructive, but they are personal desires. They're not merely the cultivation of virtue. They're, we have other projects going on in our lives. So artha is the cultivation of self-interest sort of getting what you think you need. 
Now, what's interesting, of course, you can see the relationship because among civilized people, there are rules of the game. And the rules of the game are that you have to cultivate or you have to pursue artha according to dharma. In other words, you want to make a lot of money, you have to follow the law. You can't cheat, you can't embezzle, you can't, I mean, theoretically. So, so the idea is artha should be pursued according to dharma, according to reasonable principles of virtue. Then, why did, I mean, often people want money because they want to spend it. Some people just want to collect it, but a lot of people want to spend it. And so kama, you may have heard of the kama sutras. Kama means uh, sort of self-gratification, sense gratification, like I want to eat, drink, and be merry. I want to enjoy my body. I want selfish pleasures. So again, dharma, the cultivation of virtue, art of the cultivation of self-interest. Art also means money in Sanskrit, by the way, value, like in Spanish they say in la bolsa de valores, that's how they say stock market. The, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, the market of values. So that's art. The kama means just satisfying your body. We have different urges. You want to eat, drink. There's a sex urge. So satisfying your bodily needs and desires is kama. Now, uh, because all this is going on, all this is going on within an overarching view that ultimately we are not simply physical beings. Even in Buddhism, of course, which we'll talk about more later, and certainly in all the, in, 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 uh, the most important forms of Hinduism, the idea is, in Jainism, we are not physical beings. We have a body. We are inside this body, but as Krishna says in the Gita, it's just an outer garment. We are really spiritual, pure spiritual beings within the body. And therefore, even if we do all these three things, we're still doing it within the physical world. What about our ultimate enlightenment? What about eternal life and so on? Therefore, there's moksha, liberation or salvation, literally means release from the Sanskrit root mooch, which doesn't mean to try to get freebies. In Sanskrit, mooch means, uh, well, this verb means to release. So moksha means release, freedom, liberation. That you've done the whole material program, you're a good person, you acquired prosperity, you satisfied your bodily desires, and now what? You're still not completely satisfied, so you pursue spiritual liberation. So this is the program for human life, according to this culture. And, and this, again, these were very sort of universal ideas, but this is the basic program. Now, we'll get back to this more a little later. Apart from these life goals, there is a sort of a ubiquitous, <coughs> a universal conviction in this culture, this Indian culture, that there are qualities to life the way you experience life, these qualities are basically sattva, rajas, and tamas. Goodness, passion, and ignorance. In other words, let's say you're in one of those moods where you're, maybe you're out in the country, you're feeling very serene, sort of a certain contentment, you have all kinds of like wisdom running through your head. It's like a deep, peaceful, self-contented moment. That's like sattva, goodness when you're sort of happy with yourself and with everyone and you want to pursue virtue in life. So in other words, when dharma is very prominent, when your life is really centered around the cultivation of virtue, you want to be a good person. When you really want to be a good person, then that's sattva. And this applies not only to atmospheres, food. For example, food which is very healthy and obtained by peaceful means. In other words, took the milk from the cow, you didn't uh, bludgeon the cow in order to get the protein. 
food which is obtained peacefully, non-violently, food which really makes you healthy, is in goodness. So food, whereas food, let's say, let's get to passion now. Food is very spicy, you know, very hot, very rich and everything to be considered passionate. It sort of gets you going. Or let's say you're in Manhattan. Let's say you go to Manhattan on a weekday and everybody's running around. It's like super passionate. Yes. Hope's not chopped dust. Anyway, passion means where an atmosphere in which what's prominent is not peace, virtue, kindness, but rather ambition. I want to get ahead. I want to possess things. I want power. It's this drive for personal ambition, this passionate quality of life. That's, well, that's passion. And then tamas, ignorance. Tamas means that uh, someone just procrastinates, can't get anything done, can't get out of bed, can never achieve anything, is irrational. Sort of like your emotions, like I hate people for no good reason, or I'm lamenting for everything, even though things aren't that bad. Sort of irrational, in the dumps, darkness, tamas, ignorance. Just irrational, unproductive, super moody life. Everyone has their moments. So the idea is that these three qualities are kind of competing against each other. Sometimes we feel very virtuous and good, sometimes passionate, sometimes we're really down. Now, the whole principle was that by Dharma, we're actually cultivating this higher quality. We should live in such a way. We should eat food, choose our friends, read books, listen to music choose the place we live, everything should be done to um, increase the virtue and the goodness of our life, and that we will be peaceful. Because as we'll, we'll see in the Gita, Krishna says that if someone's not peaceful, how can they be happy? It's like a precondition to really be happy, deep happiness, not excitement, not becoming kind of like an excited electron. I mean, if you think about the word excited in our language, it has a positive and negative uh, uh, meaning, like you can say, God, I'm really excited about that. Or you can say to someone, don't get so excited. So th- there's, there's a word in Sanskrit, harsha, which is in the Gita law, where we confuse real deep satisfaction, deep happiness with just excitement, which is not real happiness, it's excitement. So uh, out of goodness comes knowledge. There's this great line in uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, where, uh, anyway, uh, Jane finally gets the guy she wants to marry. Elizabeth, her younger sister, still hasn't got the guy she wants. So Jane, who did get the guy, says, I'm so happy, I wish you could be as happy as me. And Elizabeth, the heroine, replies, until I have your goodness, I can't have your happiness. So this is also something which is very well known in other cultures, that real happiness comes from goodness. If you want to feel good about yourself, try being a good person. So that's the idea that from goodness comes happiness, comes knowledge, Passion produces kind of like excitement and ultimately disappointment because passion is kind of like an e- a self-centered concept of happiness. And since we are not the centers of the universe, attempts to get self-centered happiness must fail because when all the dust clears, we are not the center. So that's the idea. And then, and then ignorance. Now we get to the somewhat controversial caste system. And, and then I want to relate all these three things together. Uh... The Sanskrit word caste apparently comes from the Portuguese word casta. But the Sanskrit word for this social division is um, varna, which is a book. 
And the author, uh, Hilary Rodriguez, says that um, some scholars feel that it's a racial designation because the word varna also means color. And that therefore the social division was a racial division. There's a few problems with that theory, which, which I'll go over briefly. Uh, first of all, there's no mention in the ancient text that it's a racial uh, division. It never says that. And uh, secondly, the colors are used, as are often used in the ancient text symbolically. And thirdly, the word varna means lots of other things. I mean, the word varna means a covering, cloak, mantle, outward appearance, exterior form, figure, shape, also color, species, kind, sort, character, nature, quality, property, class of men. The verb varn means to depict, picture, write, describe, relate, tell. It's a very common word which is used in many different ways. And since there's no mention in, in the text themselves there's a racial designation, designation uh, scholars now, I mean, uh, Hillary is sort of a general practitioner, is a little bit, I think, behind on that one because scholars no longer accept that. The reason the European scholars in the 19th century wanted to say that these divisions were racial is very simple. Because they discovered, we'll talk about this actually Wednesday, when they discovered that Sanskrit is closely related to English and all other European languages except Basque and uh, Hungarian and Finnish, it became obvious that if you go back far enough, there was an Indo-European civilization. And until World War II, and Hitler kind of blew the whole program apart, there was, this was one of the hottest intellectual topics in Europe, trying to figure out this Indo-European connection. And so the Europeans were col uh, colonialists, decided that India was actually conquered by white people. Because they were Aryans, because the word Arya is in the Rig Veda. Arya means a noble person. And so basically, white people, our brothers, our white brothers and sisters, moved into India by their superiority, which came naturally from the race, they conquered India, they wrote the Vedas. So all these very impressive cultural achievements actually came from us. The, um, there was this notion of the white man's burden, the idea that because, you, because European civilization was so ascendant then, it's obvious that we just do things better. We're just smarter than people in other parts of the world. So when they came to India, it was kind of a glitch in the theory because the Indian people were obviously very intelligent. They had this extremely impressive culture that was very ancient. But then when they discovered Sanskrit, thought, you know, it was a really 19th century woo-hoo moment because it turns out that we did all this. All the impressive achievements of India, we did because we invaded India, we conquered India, and however, our Aryan brothers and sisters ages ago, over time, got a little sloppy. It was probably the tropical heat, and they intermarried. And uh, they kind of ruined the purity of the race, but no problem because now, the still white Europeans are coming to the rescue. We are going to rescue our Aryan brothers who did all these great things in India but then got sloppy and intermarried. So here we come, the second wave to sort of completely civilize them and rectify everything. Now, that was a theory. Obviously, it is not politically correct today. But therefore, when they found, to say the least, so when they found that the word for the social divisions was Varna, they thought, Duh. Yes, because obviously the highest people are the white people and the lower people are the darker people. That's where the theory comes from. But it's just not what the word means here. And it's not in the ancient texts. And so, not so much for Varna. We'll talk about that more later, the uh, pastimes of the Indo-Europeanists. Yes? I'm just a little 
20 years because I, I find in a lot of Indian society, there's still a connection between Varga and color. What happened was that you have to, this is after several hundred years of European rule, where uh, you'll find, we'll, we'll be discussing this over the course, all the different ways in which the indigenous Indian culture was affected by and responded to domination from outside cultures. And so, after being ruled for several centuries by white people who were extreme racist, mm -hmm. anyway, you probably connect the dots. So, it's mentioned to the gene pool. What? Mentioned to the gene pool, so to speak. Yeah. Plus, actually, Indians are Caucasian, believe it or not, in the sense that, uh, I, mean, that's, that's a, I mean, scientifically, because Caucasian doesn't simply mean skin color. Anyway, so let, let's get to these social divisions. According to these social divisions, the Brahmana, which comes from the Sanskrit word Brahman, the absolute, the Brahmanas are the teachers and the priests. The teachers and the priests, basically. Kshatriyas are the warriors. The Vaishas are the uh, merchants and the farmers, people that produce, the productive class. The teaching class, the governing class, the productive class, and the working class. Now, this social division which the Vedic people would argue is actually natural, and we'll talk about how they think it's natural. A uh, few things to say about it. Number one, it was sort of divinely authorized. The oldest Sanskrit literature, the oldest literature in this culture, which we've mentioned several times, the Rig Veda, in the 10th book of the Rig Veda, hymn number 90, verses 11 to 12. This is, again, the sacrifice of this Purusha, the Purusha Sukti hymn, this giant person, this being, who turns out to be the Lord, but also who, who becomes himself the sacrifice, the sacrifice which produces the creation, basically. The sacrifice which doesn't kill the Purusha. I mentioned offering the Ganges water back to the Ganges. So that Purusha suit to him is, when they divided the Purusha for the sacrifice, into how many parts did they apportion him? What do they call his mouth, his two arms, uh, and thighs, and feet? His mouth became the Brahmins, you see? So this is the idea. This, by the way, you find also in the New Testament in a letter from Paul. That this sort of organic idea that there's like a social anatomy. So that the head of society is the Brahmins because they're the brain. They teach. They're the wise people. So they're the head of society. And uh, again, this goes back to the oldest literature. His arms were made into the warrior because when you fight, unless you're into Kapoeda, when you fight, you generally use your arms. And so the arms are the Kshatriyas, the warriors, the kings. And the Vaishas, the productive class, are the thighs, in other words, the stomach, because it's like you put all your food in your stomach, the stomach nourishes the body, so this class nourishes society, and the, the shudras are the legs, also integral part of the social body, but they do the work, they sort of carry the society, like the legs carry the body. So, this is the divine justification, way back to the oldest and most prestigious sacred literature, the Rig Veda. Uh, and uh, Krishna also mentions this system. In fact, in the uh, Bhagavad Gita, again, think back to the logos, the idea that there's a divine plan which is manifested in the structure of the universe. So that was the whole idea. This is a divine plan for organizing society. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says at 4.13, chapter of Varnimaya that I've created this system. Krishna speaking as God says, I've created this system. Now, here's a very important point. And the Purusha, by the way, going way back, even far back before the Bhagavad Gita, the Purusha began to be identified with Vishnu, or, or God. 
Vishnu is God, Vishnu and Krishna, same person doing business and different, different hats on. So, Vishnu or Krishna, long ago, thousands of years ago, began to be identified as the Purusha of the Rig Veda. So now, what's interesting about Krishna's description is, this is not a hereditary system. This is not a hereditary caste system. This is a system, it is a meritocracy, it is based on the quality of each person. Krishna often talks about this Varna system, the Gita. He never mentions it by birth. Every time he mentions it, he says it is according to your own nature. You become a Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Sudra based on your own qualities, your own nature, what your propensities are. And there are actually examples of this. There's an ancient text called the Chandogya Upanishad, actually much older than Gita. And there's a story of Satyakama, which in Sanskrit means truth lover. Satyakama. And uh, Satyakama was, he was born in the lowest possible circumstances. His mother was unmarried, first of all, which was an extremely conservative, you know, religious society. So he's, first of all, he's born to an unmarried mother. And then, when he wants to go away and study the Vedas, which was only for the Brahmins, only Brahmins could study, because they were very jealously guarded this uh, privilege. So here he is, he wants to go study the Vedas. And so he says to his mother, like, what's our last name? Which in Sanskrit is Gotra. You know, it's like when you make, you know, your college application, the first little boxes, last name, same thing in ancient India. If you go to a great guru to learn the, the secret Vedas, the first question is, what's your last name? What's your lineage? So he asked his mother, what's my last name? What's our lineage? And she said, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> And actually, when I was young, I was sort of moving around, and uh, I don't really know who your father is. So socially, you can imagine. Uh, he, so he just bottomed out, such a comma. Anyway, she says, since my name is Jabala, uh, you can call yourself Jaivali, or Jabala. So, you know, it's a matronym, name for the mother's name. So he goes to one of the, this very prominent guru, and says, I want to be a Brahmin. I want to study the Vedas. And so... The teacher says, what's your last name? He says, well, that's a good question. And I asked my mother that, and she said that she didn't know, because, uh, you know, and he, he just very faithfully told the guru exactly what he heard from his mother. And the guru said, you know, you're so honest, you're actually a Brahmin. So here's an example of someone coming from what later came to be called untouchable, or you know, the lowest possible social position, and yet the guru said, got the quality, got what it takes. So he, he became actually a very prominent sage in Vedic culture. And Krishna, anyway, I have all these verses, not time to go over all of them, but Krishna says that the divisions, Brahmana, here's the Sanskrit, Brahmana, Kshatriya, Visham, Shudranang, Chaparantapa, Karmani, Pravibhaktani, Subhava, Prabhavairuna, that these different divisions are assigned by your quality, by the quality of your uh, of you. Yes? Um, the story that you just told us, was that written, or was that a, um, some kind of literature, or did that actually happen? Uh, yeah, that's in a very ancient text called the Chandogya Upanishad. Oh, okay, because I know that when I was reading, it said that the Brahmins didn't usually, I mean, even though the writing says that they're right. supposed to think exactly. that's based on your um, attributes and your yeah. I, before this class ends, time goes so quickly when you're having fun, I want to talk about the skepticism of this book and the fact that I think sometimes the author gets a little too politically correct and a little too skeptical. Here are a few facts. 
Um, we do have a consistent picture of these ancient texts that although in pre-industrial, agrarian, extended family societies, social divisions do tend to be very conservative. That's, that's certainly true. But there was some nobility, and all the texts agree on that. With time, two things happen to degrade the system, according to the texts themselves. One thing is that it's Kali Yuga. We talked about Yugas, I think, last time. And so because we're in a fallen age, according to the texts themselves, the culture is becoming degraded. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, um, Krishna says, talking about the Vedic culture he's living in, he says, Yogo Nashta, which in Sanskrit, uh, yoga, yoga, yoga here means the, the spiritual culture. Nashta is lost, then destroyed. And so the whole principle of, these, of this yoga system is that in this age, dharma, virtue, culture, is becoming degraded. And so therefore the, the system becomes corrupted. Also with the Muslim invasion, other invasions actually, which we didn't mention, uh, the system got skewed because when you have someone else governing you, you can't really do things. So uh, the age itself is becoming degraded. There was foreign rule. So the picture we have now, the caste system, is in several ways a skewed system. This does not mean that we should automatically be skeptical and think that everyone was always a hypocrite. In fact, I wanted to read something from the book which I thought was over the top cynical. On page 57, the author says, and you know, he's, it's a nice book in general, but he does say on page 57 that the Dharma Shastras, the, the scriptures that talk about Dharma, provide a codified attempt to protect the status of the upper class. In other words, the only reason they wrote books was their only purpose was uh, protecting their own social position. And on page 60, he says, the Varna system, this Varna system, uh, was evidently upheld. Why? To sustain the supremacy of the upper classes, and in particular the Brahmin Varna. In other words, in ancient times, no one ever really wanted to do the right thing. The Brahmins never really just wanted to serve and teach people. The Kshatriyas never really wanted to just protect people. Everybody was just grabbing for power. So uh, the problem with that conclusion is that the history seems to say something else. And now I want to quote some things from history. The earliest third-party objective picture, and this uh, addressing the question was that, what was your name back there? Um, Natasha. Natasha. I wish I could learn all your names. It's kind of like the system. It makes it difficult. Anyway. So, in 300, a, an ambassador, a Greek ambassador named Megasthenes went to the capital, what was then a type of Indian empire, in Pataliputra, now known as Putnam, the state of Bihar. He was a Greek ambassador, about 300 BCE, and um, from one of the parts of Alexander's empire. This is what he says about India. This is 2,300 years ago. The inhabitants, having abundant means of subsistence, it's a very prosperous society, exceed in consequence the ordinary stature. In other words, these are large people. They're very healthy. They have a lot of food, they're well-off, and are distinguished by their proud bearing. This is an elegant group of people. The law ordains that no one among them shall under any circumstances be a slave. This is very unusual. This is almost unique in the world at that time. The law ordains that no one should be a slave, but that enjoying freedom they shall respect the equal right to freedom which all possess. Here's another quote. The philosophers 
being exempted from all public duties, are neither the masters nor the servants of anyone. The Brahmins, they're not the masters of anyone, they're not the servants. But because they're teaching wisdom, they're actually, you know, they get a subsidy. So the society recognizes the need to maintain a group of people who do nothing but cultivate and teach wisdom. Farmers, people that produce food, exempted from fighting and other public services, devote the whole of their time to farming, nor would an enemy coming upon them at work on their land do any harm. In other words, this is not total war where you kill innocent people as we find throughout human history. This is a higher civilization. For men of this class being regarded as public benefactors, farmers or public benefactors are protected from all injury. The land, the land, I mean, think of the Romans and the Punic Wars salting the earth of Carthage and basically just wiping out a whole civilization. The land thus remaining unravaged and producing heavy crops supplies the inhabitants with all that is requisite to make life very enjoyable. This is a happy, rich, healthy group of people. That's the picture Megapsis, a Greek ambassador, gives in 300 B.C. Uh, the artisans, artists, get, are not only exempted from taxes, but they're maintained. The state maintains artists. The arts are highly patronized. Philosophy is patronized. Everyone has lots of food. It's, um, what about foreigners? What about foreigners? Among the Indians, officers are appointed for foreigners. The duty of the officers is to see that no foreigner is wrong. So if you go to India at that time, and you're a foreigner, the government is going to put someone on the case to make sure no one cheats you because you don't know the language, you don't know the exchange rates, you don't know the real value of things in the market. The government's going to make sure no one cheats you. Should any foreigner lose their health, the government sends physicians to attend them. Should any of them, uh, and, if, and if the person dies, they bury him and deliver over such property as he leaves to his relatives. The judges also decide cases in which foreigners are concerned with the greatest care and come down sharply on those who take, take unfair advantage of them. This is a very civilized society. Now, around a few years later, we have another report, and that is the first really documented king in Indian history. It was Ashok, around the uh, middle of the 3rd century B.C. So this is maybe 30 to 50 years later. Here is from a, a, a standard history book written, I think, a year ago from a professor who's now at UCLA, uh, Dr. Uh, Sardesai. Emperor Ashok set up Dharma Mahamatras. There were people who toured the empire to enforce regulations based on compassion to humans and animals alike. Ashok's reign is known for being extremely compassionate. Even animals had rights. They had an animal rights program. This is almost 2,300 years ago. And not to speak of human rights. There was freedom of religion. The government actually sponsored and helped to uh, patronize all different religions. And the last report I want to give you about how the system played out in practice, so you'll see the cynical version of it is a little off-center. Fa Xian, Chinese name. I admit that I, anyway, don't, I don't that's right pronunciation, but he's a famous... He was a Buddhist pilgrimage who went to India. Buddhist pilgrim, I'm sorry. Who went to India around 600 C, uh, CE. And he was quite literate. 
And he wrote this very detailed, almost ethnography of India. So it's one of the main sources historians have. And this is what he says about India. And this is about 1,400 years ago. He says, it says, Vasyan spoke glowingly about how peaceful India was. How peaceful it was, noting the rarity of serious crime. And the mildness of administration. The government was very mild. The people were peaceful. It was possible, he stated, to travel from one end of the country to the other. It's a very big country. Without a passport and without any fear of molestation. Try that in America. Can we say in America that there's practically no serious crime? Can we say that you can go anywhere in the country without any fear of what's going to happen to you, any neighborhood? So this is, these are the reports we have. This is not just uh, something you know, from a, a book. That, 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 that these are the historical reports we have. And a couple more minutes left. What else did I want to share with you? Uh, any questions on all this? Yes, please. What Tarna, what artists? Artists. There was sacred art which was done by Brahmins. If someone was sort of like an artisan, kind of did what you'd call commercial art or whatever, uh, it'd probably be a Shudra. But then again, Chetri is also like, that there were people from higher classes that would do art. It wasn't just all commercial. And sacred art, there were different kinds of sacred art done by Brahmins. So different classes, I would say. Yes. Okay. Um, from the book and the stuff and the like actual facts that you gave us right now, yes. um, I understand that. But the author of the book, she must have gotten her information from someone. It's actually a he, Hillary. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, it, it's true that this system did become corrupted in many ways. Okay, so she's talking about it like. I mean, he's talking about it from, like, after all that bad stuff happened, after the society got damaged or whatever? Yeah, and there were times, there were, um, how should I put it? For example, America. We have a constitution. We have certain laws. On the ground, if you actually follow the news and see to what extent, for example, there's rules in the government to prevent graft, like, you know, you should bid out contracts. Then you have in Iraq where these multi-billion dollar contracts were not bid. And it's like, oh well. So if you look at state governments, city governments in different parts of the country, there's all kinds of corruption. There's actually massive corruption going on. And that's true in other countries as well. So the same thing in India. I mean, India, at a certain point, at a certain point, there were pockets of corruption. There were, you know, as we come more into modern times, there were, you know, there, there, there was obviously a hereditary caste system. There were certain parts of India that were more conservative that, that got oppressive in the caste system. So the bad things happened. But what I want to say is that, first of all, the original system was different. And also, another thing I want to say is that the value of preserving the right principles, even if you don't always follow them. And that is, I like, take the American Civil Rights Movement. Now, we had this thing about people are equal, people have equal rights. Now, that was not being followed properly. It, it was just, it was obviously not, well, it was not being followed. However, because the principle was there, you had something to refer to. People could go to court and say, look, we have this law in the books, we should follow it. This is what our Constitution says. So there's some value in conserving the right principles because it gives you the possibility, and it gives future generations the possibility 
of referring to something and, and basing your arguments on something and shaming the society into giving up its hypocrisy. So they did have very good principles, I think, and uh, they were followed sometimes very well, sometimes not, and there were periods where it became you know, pretty corrupt. But in general, the picture is much more complex than you might learn from the book. Anything else back there? Do you have a question? Oh, one thing before I forget, um, regarding the papers, the little things you're supposed to turn in, please do it. And if any reason you know the book, I think everybody's got their book now, then uh, if you missed anything, try to get it in by Wednesday. Because you get a little vacation. So again, it's not meant to be stressful. You don't have to, um, you know, the ones you turned in were really great. I was actually very impressed. Uh, we have a lot of very intelligent people in this class, but yes. Are you going to return those? Do you want the return? Yeah, because I kind of take them as like kind of... Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring them in. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, we actually have... A couple of minutes, so... I kind of triggered something there. Let me see if there's anything really worth making you stay for. Uh, no other questions on these points. Yes? Um, well, you did mention that there are two things that happened to the grades. Um, well, one was there were foreign invasions, and then just time. I mean, according to the... According to the, the, the ancient books themselves, we're in a period that's degrading. Okay, so foreign well, um, there's more to say, but... Oh, one last thing that is worth saying, I think. One of the biggest issues, one of the biggest issues in India, I think, in any culture has been this. And I put this in that little paper thing, the, the one and the many. On the one hand, if you look at many civilizations, certainly in India, uh, there's this notion that when people are enlightened, when you really become wise, you see the oneness, that we're all one. And you have all these movements. I mean, Jesus. Jesus was famous also for sort of uh, rejecting the existing hierarchy, saying, look, you know, we should all just be a family. We should all be one. Buddha taught this. The James taught that. Krishna taught it. Many other teachers taught it. So you have this idea of oneness, that we're all spiritual beings, we're all one, and yet you have the reality of social hierarchy, which is somewhat natural. I mean, even in America, I just read in the, in the Harvard Magazine that um, there's not as much upward mobility in this country as we like to think. Salary gaps, the gaps between the, the richest and the highest salaries and regular salaries, is the biggest gap in the last 80 years. So there's this, if you look at nature, if you do zoology, zoology, there are hierarchies everywhere in nature. There are athletic hierarchies, right? The ratings, like, you know, tier one or division one or whatever it is. There are athletic hierarchies. There are hierarchies financially. There are social hierarchies all around the world. And so how do you deal with the fact that all species of life <coughs> seem to drift into hierarchies? Even in, in, in cultures like, say, Buddhist culture or the Jesus community, or all, we start out like, let's all just be brothers and sisters. Just wait a little while, wait a few years, wait a generation, and it just pops back into the same hierarchy. And so you have this, this, this sort of irrepressible reality of hierarchy, and yet you have the spiritual fact of oneness. And how do you deal with these things? Now, now I will end on time, so don't panic. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, there, there is, this thing is addressed. Because Krishna, after laying out this system of social, occupational, vocational divisions, and saying that um, they're based on your own qualities, but then he emphasizes, 
I mean, I don't have to read all the Sanskrit, sway, sway, comedy, up, yada, yada. Krishna emphasizes that every member of society has exactly the same opportunity for enlightenment, for spiritual perfection. It's the opposite of the ritual side, where if you're not a Brahmin priest, like you can't go into certain sacred ground, you can't perform certain rituals. On this side, on the spiritual wisdom side, everyone has exactly the same opportunity to reach God or nirvana or enlightenment or whatever. So there's this idea that society inevitably organizes itself into hierarchies, but if this wisdom, the oneness of everyone remains very powerful, then it sort of balances the material hierarchy. In America now, what we're seeing is, or, or all around the world, when you have a highly consumerist, highly greedy culture, then the idea is like, like that, okay, we're all one, we're, you know, we're all from the same country, we're all family, but people forget that. It's like, no, I want to get more for myself. So to what extent does a society balance its hierarchy with its wisdom that everybody is one and equal? To what extent are those things balanced? And so that balancing is what Krishna is teaching in the Gita, but how much that's applied in practice varies throughout history. So I wish everyone a very happy mini-vacation.